This is a continuation of the application section of the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 8, really 1 through 11, are all about doctrinal matters. 1 through 8 specifically concerns the gospel, condemnation, justification, sanctification, glorification. Romans 9, 10, and 11 discuss... Now, what are we going to do with the fact that Jews and Gentiles are coming together in one body, and it seems like the, the Jews are in the minority, which is not what we expected from reading our Old Testament? We've made our way through that. Chapter 12 through 16 is practical matters, application. How are we going to live? And today especially focuses on moral and ethical matters. The first two verses was Paul's initial call to be a living sacrifice in light of everything that we've just seen, be a servant of the Lord. And then verses 3 through 8 were all about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which Paul talks about in, in many, of his gospel, many of his epistles, I should say, about the Holy Spirit makes us one, we're the body of Christ, but we all have a different role and function to play. And today, in verses 9 through 21, we have a lot of short little commandments of what we ought to do as Christians. I think if you're paying attention and you're going to go to home fellowship this week, highlight one or two that you're like, yeah, I, I need to work on that one. I think there'll be some great discussion in those groups this week after this one. And the structure of this section is pretty loose. We've been going through Leviticus on Wednesdays, and there's a very defined structure to the book of Leviticus we've been tracking. But here, Paul's just throwing out a, an awful lot of instructions. And then the other chapters will have some longer segments that we're going to look at. But what this reminds us, by its very existence, this section reminds us that doctrine has practical implications. What you believe affects how you behave. And we know that, and it sounds obvious when you say it, but you need to say it. That God expects us to obey his commandments if we claim to be his people. Now we say, in an, in an attempt to defend against legalism, which is an important thing to do, Jesus did that. But we say it's not just about keeping the commandments, it's about having a love relationship with Jesus, all of that. Yes, that's very true. But Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me... You will keep my commandments. And it is really all too easy to allow the status of Christian and having a theologically informed understanding of what a Christian is to keep you from making the appropriate adjustments to your life and behavior. Say, so, well, I'm saved. I know what it means to be saved. And it's not about all of these things that I do. And some churches hammer that way too much. We don't want to be like them. And you can then miss the fact that the Lord expects you to make adjustments to your life. And in fact, that should be the delight of your life, is to say, let's do what Jesus said. Like the man that was, had the demons cast out of him. He said to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Or in the man who was blind and was healed of his blindness. And he said, Jesus said to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? He goes, who is he that I might believe on him? He's like, you're the one that opened up my eyes. You're the one that set me free from these demons. Just tell me what to do. But sometimes, especially if you've grown up in the church and you're familiar and used to being in Christ, you can start to resent the fact that the Bible makes some pretty serious demands of us morally and ethically. And this, the ones we're going to look at today are, are so simple. They're really basic, and a lot of them are things that just about anybody could get on board with, even if you're not a Christian. But sometimes, those are the most difficult to obey. 
These are going to be bullet point lessons for the most part. We're going to take them in some sections, smaller sections. They kind of hold together loosely. There's a general thrust, but these are a bunch of individual commandments that hopefully there will be a couple that you can really grab onto and say, I got to work on that one and, and make that a point of prayer. We'll begin just by looking at verse 9, and as we go, we'll make our way through. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. So you see how this is going to go. We begin with two, it's really three, but it's two commandments. That I think these two, the reason we start with just as one verse, I think these two commandments serve as a very fine summary for what the Christian ethic ought to be. The Christian life and how we live is summed up by what Paul tells us here in verse 9. Number one is love. That is our controlling virtue as Christians. It's God's controlling virtue as well. We're going to look at that from 1 John 4. And number two is that we do what is good. That's where we got our title for today. We're the good guys. We love people and we do the right thing. And while we look at these in turn, let love be genuine. That word for love, you've known it since you were a kid, is the word agape. It's that beautiful Christian word that even secular scholars have acknowledged. This word for love was never really elevated to the status it is today until the New Testament writers got a hold of it. Until Jesus and Paul and Peter and James got hold of this idea of agape and elevated this. It's, it's love. Defined in 1 Corinthians 13 as being patient and kind and all the rest of that. And he says to be genuine. That's the ESV translation. The, the Greek word there is anupokritos. You can kind of hear it. It's without hypocrisy. It's the word hypocrite with a negation in front of it. So this means that when we love each other, and we know we're supposed to, we know what it means. He says, this is not to be an act. This is not a mask that you put on. Not like those Greek and Roman drama masks where one of them's a smile, one of them's a sad face. Like, that's not what love is like for a Christian. It's to be sincere, real. John, uh, 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love, which is a profound statement that God is love. We worship our God. He is Trinity in unity. God himself in his very substance and existence is a harmonious, loving community of persons. That's how you can say that God is love. Love is a defining attribute of God because God is triune. If God was alone, if God was as the Islam or as Muslims would say, God is Allah alone and there's no one beside him. Well, then love would be something that God picked up later. That God was able to exist apart from love until he created because there was no object for his love. But the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have eternally existed in a loving relationship with one another. Therefore, God is love. And that, therefore, is to be the basis of all our interactions with people. That we love them. And the point Paul's making here is that we don't fake it. We don't fake love. You can tell when someone's faking love, can't you? You ever had somebody try to sell you a car? Right? 
They're, they're, they're being so nice and so interested in your kids. And, oh, tell me about his t-ball game. How did it go? I can't believe the coach didn't put him in. You know, like, it's, it's, you know, it's business. And that's you got to remember sometimes because, you know, you'll we'll try to make it seem like we're having a relationship here when there's something else going on. But Paul goes, we don't do that in the church. And secondarily, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. I thought this was fun. The word for hold fast is kolao in Greek. And it means to glue to be glued or to adhere together, something sticky. And this is what it's supposed to be, our relationship to what is good. We're the good guys. We are absolutely on the side of the light as Christians. 1 Thessalonians 5.5 says, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. That we are absolutely not we are absolutely on the side of good. We're not trying to strike a balance between good and evil and find what's the right middle road that that was kind of Greek philosophy and that's the Taoist philosophy, trying to find that via media. No, no, no. We are absolutely on the side of the light and we, what a great word, abhor what is evil. That English word is related to the word for horror. We have a, a horrific view of sin and evil. We're never to have any kind of fascination for what is evil or admiration for what is evil. There, there are some Christians in their attempts to be, I don't know if they want to seem worldly, I don't know if they want to seem just broad-minded, but they want to spend a lot of time talking about all the great ideas that other world religions have and other philosophies that are opposed to the gospel have. And this is not just being, oh, I love other people. This is saying, let's take a look at these people that, according to the scripture, are deceived by doctrines of demons, Paul would put it in 1 Timothy. And let's find what we can like about this. But in, in the church, we have an abhorrence for what is evil. And we are stuck to what is good. We are inflexibly good as Christians. Which also implies, by the way, we have firmly defined categories of what is good and what is evil. And that's not very modern, which tends to blend things and focus on the gray areas of the difficulties. And listen, there are exceptions to these rules where you, you kind of bring this rule to the point where it, it almost breaks. And it's important to take the time to examine that. But it seems like nowadays that's all we want to talk about. And that that's, this undermines the entire principle. But Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, the prophet warned the people. He said, woe to you who call good evil and call evil good. God is not under any illusion over the status of good and evil. He's not saying, this is good, this is evil, and this might be, I don't know, are these really, they're kind of fluid categories. No, no, no. We know what's right. The Lord has shown us what is right. So a Christian is full of love, but it's love that is informed by what is good and what is right, with a hatred of sin. That you see somebody bound up in sin and you are in so much love with this person that the fact that they are bound up in something as abhorrent as sin can cause us to have some seriously zealous reactions. And that's important. So these are our controlling virtues, what is, what is loving and what is good as believers. So knowing that, we can move on to verses 10 and 11. He tells us again, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, 
Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. So these two verses, they contain five different imperatives. They concern internal attitudes and affections. So you could, you could call these heart motivations of what we are to do as believers. Now, Jesus was a unique teacher because we try to always compare him to other ethical teachers and so on. But what Jesus taught is that the heart of what you do matters as much or even more than what you do. Matthew 5, 28, right? Jesus said, it's not enough just to refrain from adultery. You're not even to lust after a woman because that is adultery in God's eyes. It's the matters of the heart. I've even seen uh, some people criticize Christians for this. They say, why isn't it enough just to tell people to do the right thing? Why do they also have to think and feel and believe the right thing? Because the Lord is concerned with the whole person. So this is why our attitudes and our affections matter. And so first of all, he tells us to have brotherly affection for one another. You might note this in verse, nine, uh, verse 10. It is a different word for love than what we saw in verse 9. Verse 9 had the, was related to the word for agape. Verse 10 is related to the word philastorges. So philos is kind of that brotherly love. Storges is that general family love. And that makes sense because he uses the word for brotherly affection, Philadelphia which is brotherly love, right? So this is a very family-oriented imperative there. It basically says love each other like family in the church. Like family. And he tells us to have affection for one another. So this means that we have to cultivate affection for one another. If love is going to be without hypocrisy, then it's got to be real. And he tells us to love each other with that kind of affection. So much for the idea, I'm going to do the right thing for you, even though I don't like you very much. Paul says you've got to work on having affection for one another, not just going through the motions. And there are going to be some people you come across in the church that are more difficult to show brotherly affection to than others. That's just real. Some people you click with right away. Man, we were buds. We were talking. We were having a good time. Then there's that girl. And every time she walks in, like, oh, don't sit next to me, please, not her. We only have one service now, so you can't avoid, like, I'll go to second and they'll go to first. No, you, you've got to work at it. But here's the good thing. God loves all of us, doesn't he? Doesn't Jesus love every single one of us intensely? He is able to teach you what is lovable about another person. You've got to take the time to pray it through. Now, are you ever going to be best friends with everybody in the church? No. But you were growing up, you, you weren't maybe best friends with all of your siblings, but what did your mama say? You're going to love each other, your family. You're going to sort this out, your family. You're going to get along, your family. Same thing in the church. And we have a greater motivation even than family, not just our own blood, but the blood of Jesus has covered all of us. Now, related to that, he says that we are to outdo one another in showing honor. To outdo, the word is to lead or to go before. You could translate it, set an example to everybody else in giving honor. We in the church are to set an example to the world over how we make each other feel valued. So we're talking all these words about love, right? We love one another and we're setting an example in how we actively honor one another. And when someone comes in the church, they should never feel like they're just part of the crowd, slipping in and slipping out, but that we are showing honor to one another. When somebody does well, we honor them. When someone stumbles or has a hard time in life, we're right there to help them and pick them up and elevate them back to that place. 
We're called to be humble in the church. And what people will sometimes say is, listen, if I just try to be humble, then I'm just going to get run over. <laughs> if I try to live the way that Jesus tells me to, I'm going to get steamrolled and flattened by all these other people. But the other side of what the Lord is telling us here is to honor one another. So if I'm humbling myself and seeking to honor everybody else, and everybody else is also humbling themselves and seeking to honor everybody else, this will work. Because I'm no longer putting myself forward because I don't have to put myself forward. Because the rest of the body of Christ is doing that for me. And that's exactly what Jesus told us to. Remember in Luke when he saw that they were all fighting over the best seats at the table when they came in for banquets and stuff? He said, here's, a, here's something. When you come in, don't take the seat of honor. Sit down at the lowest possible spot. Because then your host might see you and say, hey, you don't need to sit down there. Why don't you come up here? He says, then you've been honored in front of everybody. And he said, for everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. But everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. So we make a big deal out of each other here in the church. Honor is not just for pastors, not just for people with radical testimonies, not just for Christian activists. No, honor in the church should go to those that are faithfully serving the Lord well. We should honor, for example, a couple that has been married for a very long time in the church. That's honorable. Couples that have raised godly children, that's an honorable thing. People that take their time and invest their money and their resources to love the brethren and, and go on mission trips and handle problems in our own community, that's what's honorable. Somebody who serves in the church quietly and faithfully year after year and nobody knows that they're in there vacuuming that floor every weekend, that's honorable in God's church. Not just the big, flashy Christian celebrity, but the person that has been doing it carefully and faithfully. That's why Jesus said, the last will be first. The context of that statement, Jesus was saying, when you come to the judgment seat of Christ and those that have served me are being rewarded for what they've done, he goes, it's going to blow your mind who's on top and who's on bottom in that day. It's not going to be anything like you expect. So we ought to honor one another in the church. Now, verse 11 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He combines these three instructions perfectly into a single commandment that essentially amounts to be passionate for Jesus Christ. Did you know that you can be lazy in your zeal? Zeal, of course, meaning fire, devotion, energy, passion. The Bible uses the word passion a little bit differently, but that's how we use this word. That you can be lazy in that. That God looks at you and goes, why aren't you more excited? Why, why aren't you more on fire for me? He expects you to be fervent. So right there, if you want to say, well, my zeal looks like this and his looks like that. All right, fine. Are you fervent? Can you honestly say that you are fervent in spirit for the Lord? That word is zeo. It means boiling over. Are you just so hot and on fire for Jesus and his church and his gospel and his doctrine that is just boiling over? I got in trouble the other day because I was working on something for in the kitchen and the macaroni boiled over and I just didn't notice. So that's, that's what I think of that. Should have been paying attention, I guess. Boiling over. We all have passion, don't we? You're passionate about something. I, it could be something, and I'm not even making fun of it, but it could be something even like sports. 
You're passionate about your team. You're passionate about the school you went to. You're passionate about your job. You're passionate about your family. You're passionate about political matters. You're passionate about any number of things. Your creative works, your hobbies, things that just get you out of bed in the morning. You're constantly thinking about it. You could spend all day doing it and never even you know, worry about the time. You have passion. The Bible commands you to have that same passion for the Lord Jesus. This is not a personality type thing. This is a commandment. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. This is the opposite of the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3. Verses 15 and 16. Jesus wrote to them, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. And there's difference of interpretation. Is cold meaning far from Christ and hot meaning on fire for Christ? Or is it just meaning cold is extreme, hot is extreme, somewhere in the middle? Either way. He says, I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Like the old word, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Jesus says, what, what's wrong with you? Don't you know what I've done? Don't you know what this is? This is something the prophets have been looking forward to for thousands of years, and you get to live it, and you just go, eh, yeah, okay, I mean, it's part of what I do, but I don't want to let it define me or anything like that. You've been brought from death to life. You've been brought from darkness to light. You've had your eyes opened. You know how the world is going to end. You know the truth that can save men's souls, and you just kind of shrug? Jesus said, I'm going to barf you out of my mouth. I, it, it makes me sick to see that. He said, I'm going to remove, later on in that passage, I'll remove your lampstand from its place. I'll, I'll, I'll remove your church if you continue in this way. Today, I don't know if it's because we're so wealthy. I don't know if it's because we're so accustomed to being entertained and we're constantly viewing stories, movies, books, and things. And, uh, or maybe it's because that we're uh, constantly reading the news. I don't know what it is. But we kind of have this this once removed detachment from life that we can have. Where rather than being participants in what goes on, we're spectators in what goes on. And you can apply this across the board that, you know, we're not gonna go out and play sports, for example, but we'll spend an awful lot of time watching somebody else do it. You know, we spend an awful lot of time watching what happens in Washington, for example, without paying really any attention to what happens right here in front of us. We, we spend so much time being moviegoers, we kind of stay back from what actually happens. And we can be mockers of people that are zealous and passionate. It's like we watch things happen to other people rather than stepping up. And we mock zeal and passion. But let me tell you, God does not mock zeal. Read through the Bible. There were some radical people that served the Lord. And you know what Jesus said, what God said? Oh, I love this guy. John the Baptist is my favorite example of this. He was a Nazarite from birth, which means he never cut his hair and he never shaved his beard. And he lived in the desert, so he would have gotten all just nappy and nasty. He wore leather that he probably cut himself. He had camel's hair on. He ate bugs. He ate honey. So he would have been like really like rail thin and skinny because he wasn't eating meat and all that. And then he shows up out of the desert dunking people under the water and calling people out. And then the, all the pastors show up and he goes, get out of here, you bunch of snakes. And Jesus said, of men born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. You go, really? John the Baptist? What about, I mean, Elijah? Think about Elijah, right? 
I'm going to call down fire from heaven and then slaughter the prophets of Baal at the river. That's the part that gets cut out of all the kids' versions of that story is when they executed all the prophets. Or David. I mean, David, when he messed up, he messed up big, didn't he? But the Lord is like, but you know what he is? Is he is zealous for my name. And I can work with that. I can work with passion. I can work with zeal. It's really much harder to get somebody going when there's no fire. It's much easier to redirect somebody that's trying their best, even if they go astray a little bit. We serve the Lord. That word for serve is, is doulos. It means slave. You're slaves of the Lord. And in your service for the Lord, that's where you develop passion. If you say, I don't really have this zeal, I don't really have this passion, I do it because it's the right thing. All right, do more and ask the Lord to give you the right heart. It'll follow. I promise you it'll follow. And if you say, well, listen, I've got all this passion. I don't know what to do with it. Get to work, Christian. Don't just be the excitable person that runs around being excited. You've got to do something with it. Teach a Sunday school class. Come in and, and volunteer to, to clean up. Go to the pregnancy center. Go to the school and help out with that. Join up with the prison ministry. We need some passionate people for that. Get to work. And very quickly, you'll realize that work in the church is not always really exciting. But what will happen is you're now directing that passion in the right direction. So love and passion for the Lord and his gospel are the driving motivations of us as Christians. Verses 12 and 13. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We'll organize these verses. They're both more or less about how to handle hard times. Verse 12 is for yourself. Verse 13 is for others. So in verse 12, number one, we are to rejoice in hope. And that's a blanket statement for life as a Christian, that it is to be one of rejoicing in hope. And it seems like every year somebody's heralding it as the worst year that ever happened and just kind of white noise at this point. It's like, yeah, bad things happen. That's just life, right? But they'll say things like, I thought my life was going to be great. How can we have children in a world like this? We are to be rejoicing in hope. So how can we have joy at a time like this? How can you have joy when all these bad things are happening? Because we have hope. That's why. Because our hope is above and outside of all of these things that are raging around us. Our position in Christ supersedes any trial that you go through. If you are in Christ Jesus, the house can burn down, the dog can run away, you can lose your job, you're still going to heaven. Your sins are still forgiven. You've still got that internal assurance that we sang about this morning in Christ. So you can press on with a smile. And there are many people that want to say Christian joy is unrealistic and pastors are always telling us to be happy and put on a happy face. I'm not telling you to fake anything. We're going to talk about weeping with those who weep in just a second here. But the overarching attitude and faith in Christ gives you a joy that cannot be shaken by anything. Doesn't mean I'm always in a good mood about life, but it means that there's just certain depths of emotion that I'm never going to descend to because I've got this buoy that constantly brings me up that I'm still alive in Christ Jesus. Especially if you've heeded the command to die to yourself. I've been crucified with Christ. Then whatever my life is, it is what it is. It's just my tent. I'm a sojourner. I'm waiting for the day to go home. 
Therefore, we are patient, number two, in tribulation. Let's be honest, something we're not always very good at, being patient in tribulation. Oh, I didn't deny my faith. I didn't fly off the handle at anybody. I didn't ruin my testimony. But I have sure not been very patient through this coronavirus pandemic that we've been going through. Patient. When you're going through something and it just seems to never end. Some of you all know my family. We have been dealing with this really annoying tax issue for a couple years now. And every time somebody asks me about it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, that's still going on. I'm like, what, that's still going on? It's like, yeah. It's been a great lesson in patience for me and my family. Now, I must have made the mistake of praying sometime a few years ago. Lord, help make me patient. Because <laughs> God goes, you got it. I've got a training program to take you through. That's one of those things, like, it's not a big crisis. Nothing's about to break, but it sure requires some patience. The lockdowns required some patience, didn't they? As these, these things that we go through. And say, so I'll get through it, but I'm going to complain the whole way. It's easy to be patient when things are good or when things are only inconvenient, but we tend to rile up at difficulty. But look at what the brother of Christ said in James chapter 1. You know these verses. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And you say, why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you want to grow up in Christ and be a mature Christian? Then when you go through trials, take them as an opportunity to grow spiritually. Don't let your hard times be your excuse to act out. We can do this in the church. I'm following Jesus, but this hard time is so bad that I'm excused in outbursts of wrath, in even blaspheming the Lord, ranting and raving. I'm excused at treating the people around me unkindly because of what I'm going through. And everybody around you who, they love you, they're being nice, will maybe not call you on it as hard as they normally would because they know you're going through it. And there's room for that, I suppose. But don't let your hard times be your excuse to act out. Where if something bad is happening, I'm going to act poorly. I've already determined that that's what's going to happen because I have an excuse and people will understand if I act poorly. Instead, James says, see this as your chance to step up and grow. That this, these are those spiritual deadlifts and bench presses that really hurt when you're doing them, but they make you stronger and they make you better and they make you able to handle more next time and to carry burdens for other people as you go through them. Patient in tribulation. And third, to be constant in prayer. We're talking about this in the context here of trials, but this is always true. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. One of my favorite Pastor Chuck Smith stories, who was the founder of the first Calvary Chapel, is uh, a bunch of pastors were leaving a, an event somewhere and they were getting in the car and he goes, all right, let's go. He starts the car and one of the pastors really snarky goes, don't you think we ought to pray before we, we drive? To which Pastor Chuck replied, I live in an attitude of prayer. I am not bound by the act of prayer. <laughs> That's kind of what he was like. You listen to his, his teachings, and it was a very gentle, grandfatherly kind of preacher. But he was, he was a tough, strong man of God. But it's a great point. It doesn't mean I'm supposed to be constantly 
Just muttering under my breath. No, no, no. It means that you have an ongoing conversation with God that never really stops. And there are the moments where you get on your knees and you commit yourself to the act of prayer, but that you are constantly in prayer and talking with the Lord. Prayer is preventative maintenance against hard times. You can't wait until the trial comes and then start praying. I mean, you should. You should pray when the trial comes, but you should have been praying long before that. And as I always say, actual prayer. Did you actually pray or did you just think, it sure would be a good idea to pray right now? That doesn't count. Or somebody says, will you pray for me? And you go, yes. Then the next day you go, oh yeah, I said I would pray for them. Yeah. Well, get on your knees and actually pray for them. And we can, again, we're trying to fight against legalism. So we say, you don't have to kneel. You don't have to fold your hands. I'll tell you, when I pray, I get on my knees and I fold my hands like a little boy at his bedside. Because it puts me in the posture and the attitude of I'm doing something holy and I'm having a conversation with the Lord. And as it goes on, especially if I'm alone, sometimes I'll stand, sometimes I'll walk, sometimes I'll lift my hands or lay out on the carpet, whatever it is. But you do what it takes in order to make it happen. When Satan desires a victory over you, he will begin by pulling the plug on your prayer life. I believe it was Charles Spurgeon that said this. I could be wrong, but it is a good Christian quote here. When he says, because prayer has access to the power of God and God's power is unlimited, prayer is omnipotent. And that's one of those things that says it just over the line so that it catches your attention and you get the point, don't you? And because prayer is, to use that term, omnipotent, because prayer engages in the battle and brings the power of Christ to bear on your situation and calls upon angels to fight for you, as Daniel chapter 9 and 10 tells us, Satan wants to stop you from praying because that's where you're strong. He wants to convince you that your strength is in your organization and in your administration and in your skills as a person. But as we know, the flesh is weak. But in the, in the spirit, we have mighty power to destroy strongholds, the word says. So he disconnects you from prayer, and that's when the assault comes. When Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross, he said, I have many things to tell you, disciples. Who knows what he would have gotten into? Maybe he would have talked about the gifts of the spirit, which the New Testament outlines at length. Maybe he would have talked about the rapture and eschatology and all sorted it all out for us real neatly and cleanly. But instead, he said... But you know what? It's getting late, and we need to go pray. Jesus thought it was more important to go and pray than to give extra teaching on the Last Supper. And then they get out there, and what happened to the disciples? Jesus prayed, and they did what? They fell asleep. And Jesus told them, you, you couldn't, one hour? You couldn't pray with me one hour? And they go, well, it's not fair to shame people about prayer, Jesus. <laughs> Apparently, he hadn't heard that. <laughs> The disciples were going to face the biggest test of their lives up until their martyrdom. And Satan did everything he could to make sure that they fell asleep. Because he needs to pull the plug on prayer. If all of these commandments that we're reading today, to love and to be zealous, if this just seems so difficult and so onerous, that's because you have not yet learned to be faithful in your prayers. Because when you are in prayer and you are truly connecting with the Lord, you don't always feel like you are. But when you're in that disciplined attitude of prayer, day in and day out, week in and week out, then the commands of the Lord, as the Bible says, are not burdensome. They're a joy to you. And you can actually mark your progress as it goes along. So be constant in prayer. Individually, as a family, corporately, 
it's, it's sort of unfortunate that a lot of husbands and wives can talk to each other about anything, but praying together is really awkward. Or families, they, they'll talk and they'll laugh and they'll joke and then it's time to talk about Jesus and everybody's kind of sitting and squirming like, what do we do here? Work on that. Talk about spiritual things. Pray with one another. Teach your kids to pray. Because you, you do need to teach your kids to pray. Haven't you learned that? My son Colton prayed for probably two years and every single one of his prayers, Lord, I pray that nobody gets stuck in a tree. <laughs> and to be fair, during that time, nobody got stuck in a tree. But I loved that. He just would pray for the dinner and pray for food and pray for the, this travel and that no one gets stuck in a tree. And, you know, my, maybe Micah had gotten stuck or something and he just cared about that. But you got to teach your kids. Then he moves on. So verse, verse 12 was about kind of how you yourself would handle your own hard times. Verse 13 uh, is about helping others. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Contribute. That means contribute to real needs. In the church, we here at Calvary Chapel, Trustville, don't make a big deal out of this, but we need to be giving financially to the work of the church so that we can help each other. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 9 that we're not to be, or 2 Corinthians 9, that we're not to be doing this under compulsion, that nobody is to come in and browbeat you about this. But that being said, we're to contribute to each other's needs, both as regular tithe. And also, above and beyond that, generously to various needs that arise. Helping each other. Jesus was so clear about this. Luke 6, verse 30, he said, Give to everyone who asks from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. What's he saying? Be free with your stuff. Don't have such possession of your possessions. Be free with them. Be generous. Especially when, when you find someone that you know or that you love is in need and you have the opportunity to meet that need. The Bible says, he who knows what is right and does not do it, to him it is sin. If you have the opportunity to do what is right, you, what, you're writing a check or you helping them with this situation would lift them out of this hard time and trial, which is a temptation to sin, as we just discussed, and you don't do it. The Lord does not look kindly upon that. And secondly, he says, we are to pursue, we to seek to show hospitality. This is an all-the-time virtue, not just in crisis moments. And he says to seek to show hospitality. A lot of times we go, well, if someone really needs help and they come up and ask, then I'd be happy to. But here he says, go out of your way to try to show hospitality to people. Have an open home. Have an open heart be that family that some of us don't have in this church. Build a connection with the people here. This is why, by the way, we do that greeting thing at the beginning. Not just to give me time to get up here and get my notes together. I've already done that. This is so that you can just say hello, be friendly, start a conversation. Then when service is over, you're already sitting next to the person. You've already kind of said hello. Now it's easy to continue that conversation. And I will say, we as a church do an excellent job of this. I love hearing that a need has arisen, it's been met by somebody else, and they didn't call me to ask about it. I love that. I don't need to be involved in all of that. I'd rather the church just pick it up and handle it. Some people, when they come to a church, they don't have a family that can take care of them 
like the rest of us do, whether that's because family is opposed to them going to church, we don't live near our families, family has died or moved on or whatever it is. We as a church are to be that for one another. This is why you can't be a solo flying Christian. You've got to serve the Lord and make the friendships you need. You've got to go out of your way to do that, by the way. Proverbs says, he who desires to have friends must first show himself to be friendly. I used to tease our high school students about this a lot. I'm framing this in the context of the high school students so I don't offend nobody. But it's like, if you come in to this room full of teenagers, and they're all having a good time and laughing, and you sit in the back row like this, and then I say, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. And you sprint out the back door. Don't get in the car and tell your parents, nobody talked to me. Nobody loved me. They were all so mean. Like, well, you didn't talk. You didn't go introduce yourself. You didn't do the awkward stand by the group thing and hope somebody notices you. You didn't even do that. <laughs> like, it's up to the rest of us to talk to you. But yeah, I mean, are you here as, as a brother or sister in Christ? Are you giving this church an opportunity to love on you? Oh, it seems like everybody knows each other already. Well, yeah, it's your first time here. And if you haven't taken the time to go out and introduce yourself and say hello or hang out just for a little while, somebody will talk to you, I promise. You need to make those friends and be those friends. And if you've been here for a little while, it's up to you to seek people out. You're going to see everybody else that you see all the time. You'll see them next time. Go find somebody new and meet them. Introduce yourself. Welcome them. Find out how you can love them. So as the good guys, we're motivated by passionate love. We endure hard times together in joy. Now we move on to verse 14, and I'm going to have to go a little bit faster, so sorry about that. Verse 14 through 16. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. These are largely here about getting along with other people, even those who oppose us and everything that we stand for. And verse 14 is pretty interesting because it is very, very likely that Paul was influenced by what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in giving this instruction. Bless those who persecute you. Isn't that what Jesus said? Matthew 5, 43-44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In Luke, he even expands on that. So Paul may not be precisely quoting Jesus here, but it's very likely he's putting out the same kind of instruction. I say that because there are some people that will argue that Paul never heard anything about Jesus, made it all up, and ruined Christianity. That's not, not the case, not even close. Bless those who persecute you. Love your enemies. That's like the first lesson from Jesus we all learned, isn't it? Love your enemies. And it still remains one of the hardest things to do to this day. You'd think that since I learned it when I was four in like Awana's class, I'd have mastered this one by now. I've moved on to really hard, grievous, wicked, gross sins. No, those are easy. Right? Okay, don't kill. All right, I got that one down. I haven't killed anybody in a very long time. I'm doing really, really good. <laughs> but it's these, these issues of the heart. Love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Do you see that we're even forbidden to curse our enemies? Bless and do not curse them. He's not talking about casting a spell. He's talking about using a bunch of four-letter words to speak about those that oppose us as Christians. 
Oops, now we're all guilty, huh? This has all of a sudden become very personal, Tyler. You don't curse your enemies. This is something we tend to wriggle out of. Well, look at what they're doing. God doesn't approve of that. Well, I never said he did. Persecution of Christians is not something God approves of. And then he tells us, bless them. Lord, strike down Saul of Tarsus. He's ruining our churches. God goes, how about this? How about I make him an apostle? You can't do that. He didn't even know Jesus while he was alive. Yeah, but he'd make a great apostle. He's a Pharisee. Yeah, I know, but he'd make a great apostle. That's how we're supposed to think about those who oppose us. We are to wish the best, even for those that we like the least. And should persecution ever arise in the United States beyond like insults and harassment and things you should be able to handle just as a grown adult, never mind just as a Christian. I hope that we'll all live up to this. I hope we'll all do a really good job of praying for and blessing those who persecute us. Verse 15 is about sharing in the life of other people. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is like, feel what they feel. Don't be detached in your relationships with people in the church. This involves dying to your needs in the moment to care for somebody else. You're having a great time. You just got a raise, zippity-doo-dah. You're coming into the church. Your best buddy looks like she's about to break down and cry. Don't be like, oh, I'm not going to let her kill my vibe. No, no, no. You go over there and weep with her. Share in that. You can tell something's up with your buddy. Don't let him get away with it. Say, what's going on, man? Talk. Oh, I know you're kind of having a good day. I don't want to ruin it for you. No, come on. What's going on? Please tell me. Right? And then the other opposite of that is true. If every, it's just thunderclouds and it's the worst week of your life and I just need people to bless me and minister to me in the church. And you walk in and you see your friend and he's like, hey, man, we got the job. Oh, the, the, the check cleared. We're doing real good. Don't say, well, that's really nice for you. You want to know what happened to me? No, rejoice with them if he's rejoicing. Share in that. And when you do that for somebody else, they'll do it for you. And by the way, if you're having a rough time and you get to come to the church and minister to somebody and rejoice with somebody, that'll make you feel better an awful lot. Sometimes taking about an hour and a half on a Sunday morning to think about something else other than the problem you're going through is exactly what you need. I'm going to go home and I'm going to have to still deal with this. But when I was there, we got to celebrate all these different things. Praise the Lord for that. So don't be the person who always has to have a joke when things are serious. And don't be the person always trying to bring somebody else down. Be Christ-like in your interactions. Jesus would see what the need of this person was, and that informed how he spoke to them. It should be true for you and me also. And ultimately, it is about, as he says there, harmony. Live in harmony with one another. If you don't know what that is, it's a musical term. You play two different notes that sound really nice together. If you've ever heard a, a choir singing and they have that big note at the end that just kind of makes your spirit swell, that's, that's probably a three or four part harmony. It sounds incredible. So that's what we're supposed to be in the church. Have harmony with one another. And that begins with humility, which he defines here as associating with the lowly. That could, by the way, also be translated as associating with things that are lowly, because it doesn't specify if it's personal or impersonal. So it could be saying, don't be afraid to take the job that you see as beneath you. But I think because this verse is more or less about people, it's probably lowly people is the best way to understand that. 
don't be afraid to associate with those that you see as beneath you. And he he says, never be wise in your own sight. Don't think so much about yourself that I'm kind of above all these people. And we can say, don't be too smart to hang out with people you feel like aren't as smart as you. Don't be like, well, I'm of a higher class than they are, so I've got to hang out with my own tax bracket. Or I've, I'm the tough one in this room. I'm not going to hang out with a bunch of people that aren't at my level. or Any of that. You can apply that across the board to things that we all agree on or even just things that you're proud of in your own sight. First of all, not only are you not that great, but your entire salvation, your entire eternity depends on the Son of God emptying himself and descending to your level. So, so don't refuse to do that for somebody else. Philippians 2.7 says Christ Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. There, there is a really unfortunate tendency of high status people in whatever domain, right? whether that's financial, whether that's Uh, achievement at work, whether that's just family, whatever. High status people who will arrogate privileges to themselves that I don't have to be as serious about the things of God because I'm up here and they're down here. And they say things like, well, if you really knew how to get ahead, you wouldn't read that Bible that way, maybe. I don't know why we do that. But Jesus did say it is very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, didn't he? I would also say it's very hard for a person who is wise in their own sight very educated, very smarty pants kind of person because they can't handle the fact that maybe this person that doesn't have any of my degrees but has been in the church for a long time knows God a little better than I do. So take it upon yourself to bring peace and harmony, even among your enemies, Christian, and especially among the body of Christ. Coming to the end here, verse 17 through 21, this all kind of rolls together. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You might want to underline that one. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And these last verses specifically relate to vengeance, but they remain in this bigger stream of love that we've been discussing. We're not permitted to repay people for the evil they do to us. Why did you do that to this person? Well, don't you know what they did to me? The Bible says, repay no one evil for evil. Instead of trying to even the score with somebody and get yours in the situation, he says to hold your head up and be honorable. To be the kind of person where somebody can do that to you and it does not affect your soul or spirit in any way, and you end up walking away, and you feel like you've been disgraced, but everybody looks at you, and you're the one that comes off honorable in that situation. That's not a popular idea. Now everything is, we're not going to take it anymore. We're going we're to rage against this, and we're going to take back what's ours. And the idea of suffering willingly and honorably for Jesus Christ, there are even people in the church that despise that idea. But Peter, when he was talking about how Jesus endured the cross, he says when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus and his embrace of the cross is your example both in persecution and in personal strife. 
How did Jesus handle the most unfair trial the world has ever seen? Like a lamb to the slaughter. Isn't it interesting that the Bible uses that phrase positively and we use it negatively? Lamb to the slaughter was an example to aspire to. We say, I'm not going to go like a lamb to the slaughter. What, like Jesus did? The lamb of God? Now, are there times where this is not possible? Yes. There are times where it's time to step up. You've got to be strong. You've got to defend your family. We all get that. But if it is possible, then it is your responsibility to make peace every time. I feel like I keep on getting run over. All right, make peace. If you're not being hurt, your family's not being hurt. Well, my prospects at work, eh, no, no, come on. All right? Make peace every time. Don't hold your pride so dearly so that every provocation that comes your way is your time to strike back. We are here also specifically forbidden to avenge ourselves. That's not so common in our culture today, where if somebody kills your father or your, or your son or something, that you're going to saddle up and go after them. But it happens all over the world, and Christians are specifically forbidden to avenge themselves here. Instead, he says, leave it to the wrath of God. And Paul there quotes from Deuteronomy 32, 35. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then in Proverbs 25, 21 through 22, is that verse about giving your enemy food if he's hungry. For you'll heap burning coals on his head. What's the point? Is there any greater shame than somebody that you have mistreated helping you in your time of need? When you, that guy that you just have ripped up and down at work and you can't stand and everybody knows you can't stand him and then you're, you need help and he's the last person on the list and you've got to call him and ask him for help, it's oh, burning coals on your head. It takes an awful lot of faith to exercise this commandment and it boils down to do you trust God to take care of you when you're mistreated? We say things like, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, as in, let it go. Nothing's ever going to happen. It's not, nothing's going to come of it. That's not what he's saying. God has promised to take care of us. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 6 says that God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So if you take matters into your own hands, it's going to be a you-sized kind of revenge. But if you let the Lord handle it, it's going to be God-sized justice. All of this involves denying yourself, trusting God, and then doing the right thing every time. And he ends by telling us not to be overcome, but to be an overcomer, which means you do not let the circumstances or the people in your life push you to sin. Our enemies, as many as they may be in our lifetime, will experience our love only, just like we experienced his. We were yet sinners and Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love ahead of time. We will also show that ahead of time love to those who despise us because it may be that God is working something out in their heart. Have you ever considered how much of our Christian morality involves love? Just loving people? Being willing to take it on the chin for the sake of peace? I don't like that. Well, your example is somebody that went to the cross willingly. These today were some big picture matters for us to consider. And you kind of saw how disjointed they were. So today maybe didn't have the same kind of structure and flow that you're used to. But this is the kind of foundation that our Lord has laid. This is the kind of thing we do. 
It's love. It's doing the right thing. It's a commitment to what is good. Christians are cycle stoppers. He did this to me, so I did this to him. And then he did this to me, so I did that to him. And we're always trying to even the score. And we go round and round. The Christian is the one who's going to take it on the right cheek and then step back and say, I'm not going to perpetuate this cycle. You are a conflict cul-de-sac as a Christian. It comes your way and it stops. You're willing to endure wrongdoing for the sake of peace. And as we move on to the book of Romans, we're going to discuss next week government. Oh, you're all going to love that one. Just wait. (laughs) We're going to discuss how to handle false doctrine. We're going to discuss how to reconcile matters of opinion in the church. But it all comes back to love. So we get this right first. Don't don't just move. Okay, love. Yeah, I know. Hold on. How are you living this out? Are you being obedient or not? Don't just move on to the other stuff right away because it seems more important. This is our foundation. God cares very much about how you live, so take him seriously. 